Hello. And welcome to the Betsy Boss Podcast. Welcome back. It is March 30th. We are almost through March. Can't even believe it. And in celebration of the fact that so many people are getting vaccinated, I thought that our liberty this week might be spent talking about a fun vaccine thing. Statistic fact, uh, <laughs> FAQ, a little, a little tidbit here. A little Insider. tidbit. <laughs> exactly. So Krispy Kreme is actually offering. <laughs> Not where I expected it to go. It never is. <laughs> Krispy Kreme is offering free donuts, a free donut to every person who can present their vaccine card, which cool. is so cool. Such a nice thing to do. But of course, Gen Z being the disastrous generation oh they are, no offense. I'll just do a sidebar here. Middle parts are much less flattering. I'm just saying it. I completely agree. And sorry, everybody looks like Dwight Schrute with a middle part. Like, yes, and your on. mom jeans. I'm sorry. It doesn't, it's yeah. not flattering. It's not good. Like get off of us with our crying, happy face emojis. Okay. Yes. We love them and they're here to stay. And we love our skinny jeans. Leave me alone. I'd rather look skinnier than, than not. So right. sorry. Exactly. Give me a sorry. break. If you work hard enough to get into those skinny jeans, then you should be allowed to wear they're them. Staying. Yeah. They're staying. But anyway, sidebar on sidebars. Yes. Give me um, the, give me the Gen Z insight. Yes. So Gen Z is apparently getting all up in arms about this free donut thing because they're pissed that these fat ass people are <laughs> going to get, get rewarded <laughs> exact well pretty much yeah um but you're going to basically get awarded for rewarded for being fat and oh. it's you know they're kind of blaming Krispy Kreme for the entire country's obesity which I'm sorry it's not the donut store's fault for selling yeah. donuts they also didn't come to Pennsylvania at least until way later I I remember it was like we were like preteens at least until we got Krispy Kreme around anywhere around here yeah I think so too and I think Duncan was really the Philly yeah. kind of go-to until now I mean we have every kind of donut under the sun but yeah I just I don't understand how you can blame a donut shop for selling donuts and of course what else are they going to give you for free as a donut shop right as incentive to get vaccinated besides and, their donuts. And also, I'm sorry, wouldn't you want to encourage everyone to get vaccinated regardless of what it takes? I mean, oh, tell me about it. But here's the flip side too. They're basically saying that they're using this improper coercion to get these people oh to my God. be vaccinated. It's, they've got but too like, much time on their hands with their with their homeschool, their with their virtual colleges. I'm sorry. Uh, tell me about it. I think <laughs> they're not doing enough time paying attention to the teacher and, you know, doing too much time doing surfing the net or whatever on yeah. their tiktoks which I, right. I don't blame them i love tiktok as oh, much as the next great. fat person it's a blast but, but i like, also love donuts and vaccines right <laughs> i got my first vaccine and you bet your ass i'm gonna go with my vaccine card and get my free ass donut yeah. why not i'm uh, sorry why not like if Krispy Kreme gets canceled and i do spell canceled with a k just to match <laughs> the rest of the Krispy Kreme, kim Ooh, kardashian whatever yeah, hi, hi. Ugh, well yeah. um um, but if they get canceled, I just think, come on, like I, I will throw With my hands K. up. Come on. <laughs> no, I know. It's like, I don't know. It, it Let's calm down a little bit. Like, 
the world has sucked enough for the last year plus now that we're at the end of March. So like, come on. Exactly. And like, sue me if what I'm going to be happy about is going to be getting my damn donut for getting my vaccine. Okay. It's not like they even give you half a dozen or a dozen for getting it. No, that's exactly my point. And like one donut does not an obese person make. Okay. Exactly. Introduce me to the last obese person that you knew who got fat off of one fucking donut. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, oh, come but on. Anyway, now. in terms of disappointing Gen Zers, um, we're going to transition <laughs> to disappointing adults, disappointing pedestrians, and disappointing motorists on the road. That's right. And disappointing peop- other people who disappointed the millennial generation because our victim herself is uh, our subject of this episode is like a month older than me. So yes. Yeah. She would have been our age. And unfortunately she's not with us to tell the tale of what happened to her. Um, but yeah, this is an interesting one. And I've, I was the one that suggested this because all of the sudden I feel like it's kind of come up and, um, you know, people have been looking into it and interest has grown into this. And it's interesting because I was actually looking, you know, at stuff on Reddit and somebody posted maybe like a month ago being like, why all the increased um, interest? Like, has something big happened? Um, but anyway, where do we know why the increased interest, or it just happens to be sort of trending? No, I think it's I think it's the the tail end trend of uh, we had Tiger King at the beginning, and we have spoiler. Here's our topic: Asia Degree at the end, where people have time on their hands and they're just kind of looking into stuff that interests them. So yeah. And trying to solve these unsolved mysteries, which yeah. wouldn't have happened if everybody in this story wasn't so goddamn disappointing. Oh my, God. oh my God. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, there were definitely several characters that could have, uh, timing was of the essence and they let that drop. So, oh yeah. Just let the time tick all day. So starting off with, of course, the background on um, who the subject of our episode is. So this is Aisha Degree. She was born on August 5th, 1990. And we're looking at 2000, good old uh, Y2K. Uh, And she was nine at the time of her disappearance. Crazy to think she'd be 30 years old today, which is just like really, really incredible to think. She lived in Shelby, North Carolina with her parents, Harold and Aquila, and her older brother, O'Brien, who was 10 years old. So a year apart right there. They lived in, it's it's weird. because So I combed through uh, Reddit and some newspaper articles and stuff like that. And it comes up time again, time and again that she lived in an apartment in Shelby, North Carolina, But if you look it up, and I think this may be pertinent, because like if you're thinking of an apartment complex, you're thinking of, you know, like get out and in exactly like and you've got multiple neighbors nearby and stuff like that. This was actually a ranch style double house. So like a brick ranch style double house. They obviously had one of the entrances there. And Shelby was kind of a rural area at that time. It was definitely big stretches of um, land and agricultural area between residences there. 
And that's also pertinent to later parts of our story. I mean, exactly. If you think about highways and yep. what that looks like in the city versus the country or even the suburban areas that are sort of in between, it's a very different situation than those more rural areas. Exactly. Yeah. Highway here, we're thinking like two lanes either way with just kind of nothing on the sides. So at, at the time, again, we're at you know, we're in 2000. It's, um, Asia is a fourth grader at Falston elementary and she's described. I, I feel like you can kind of picture this girl in your class. She's shy, but very polite. One example that an article had was that she had a great singing voice and she would sing. She like, listened to a tape, take you back uh, that her her father had so much in the car and sang along with it so much that she actually wore it out. But yet at uh, church, she was too shy to try out for a solo in the children's choir. So she's yeah. kind of one of those introverted people, I can relate, who is very much herself when she's at home. Yeah, I mean, and she's terrified of the dark. She's very sheltered. I mean, this family, if you picture a family like this, we are in 2000, which was the dawn of the internet, the dawn of computers. Kids were starting to get really into technology and it was a cool thing to have technology around the house and to play computer games and stuff like that. It was really the beginning of all of that kind of the kids coming inside to play instead of going outside right. to play. And Asia really didn't have that opportunity. She and her brother were very sheltered. Their home didn't have a computer in it. I think they might've had one television set that I like, think you're right. Yeah, and I like think her dad, kind of yeah, like a family TV set, which it sounds like her dad kind of commandeered most of the time. <laughs> classic um, of the time. Classic dad and classic yeah. of my life currently. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, very, very sheltered deathly afraid I mean you can picture this little girl she's nine and like talented she was part of her basketball team she was yeah really athletically motivated um musically talented just had a lot going for her but very shy meek um reserved I'd say yeah exactly and and like you're saying it seems like her parents so both of her parents worked her Father Harold worked the second shift as a dock loader at, I don't know what this is. It may be a a company that's kind of more prevalent down um, in that area, but it's called PPG Industries, Inc. And her mom worked actually, which is so like odd and interesting. She worked building pianos at, is it Kauai? Kauai, I think, International. It's a piano company. So, you know, classic of the time, she had two working parents and she and her brother were latchkey kids. They both had a key to their house, important later on, Mm -hmm. but they also had family nearby. So her aunt Alicia and her grandmother, Joanne, lived kind of like right in the area, across the street, down the street, and would often check on them, step in, you know, if it was a day off of school, foreshadowing here. And the parents were going to be long, we're going to be gone, obviously longer than just a couple hours after school or something like that. So the day that is most important or the two days are February 13th and 14th. But I think at least what I've kind of seen, it's, I don't know if it even really matters because it 
clearly hasn't led to anything yet. But I think looking at the days before these 13th and 14th maybe could shed some light on, you know, any possibility. So starting off on Friday, February 11th, this was actually a day off of school. So the kids had off of school and it was apparently maybe like a teacher and service type of day. And she and her brother O'Brien spent the day at Aunt Alicia's house down the street, like we were saying. And it was just, I'm sure, probably kind of your normal day off, you know, playing with cousins or whatnot. And the aunt took them to basketball practice later that day at Falston Elementary, where they both went. Then we move on to Saturday, February 12th. During the day, both Aisha and O'Brien had basketball games at Burns Middle School. Aisha played first and she was the point guard. She was a, a you know vital member of the team. She actually ha- had a real knack for it. Her parents, it was kind of interesting because of her shyness, were surprised that she wanted to go out for basketball because they thought she wouldn't want to get up in front of everybody and be doing this. But she actually was one of the stars of the team and, and a great player. But in this game, it was probably one of the worst because she fouls out and it was actually her team's first loss of the season, which they probably could have used her in there. And she was (laughs) exactly well. And then she, so she ends up blaming herself kind of after that she and her, her teammates are crying. And I feel like this resonates with me. And I tell me if it does with you, where I could see this happening in like your nine-year-old mind, she and her teammates start kind of faking an injury, like limping along or whatever, being like, oh, this is the reason we lost. Right. Yeah. Which is so classic. Oh my gosh. When meanwhile, the injury was her fouling out and not being able to carry the team like usual. Right. Right. And, and this also resonates with me, I guess some adult or maybe her mom or someone was like, all right, stop. Like, no, no, (laughs) like enough. (laughs) It's just, I don't know. It's one of those learning experiences. I feel like when you're young, like that, where you're embarrassed, upset or whatever, and the adults have to be like, all right, this is not how we handle this. Yeah. Like lose with dignity, be, don't be a sore loser. Exactly. Exactly. And, and she, she recovered quickly, like most nine-year-olds do. So her brother played after and, According to all accounts, by the end of his game, she was fine. It was fine, you know. Which is important because later on, you know, when people start to wonder kind of what happened in Asia's disappearance, her attitude pertaining to the basketball game is very important. Yeah, yeah. They really focus on this. And just being so close in age ourselves – I can see exactly how this went down and I can just see the situation where in the moment, very upset, you know, doing something to try to pass the blame, like, oh, I was injured or whatever. And then getting over it quickly. Exactly. Because kids bounce back fast and, you know, and there was distraction and it sounds like the night kind of ended up okay. So that night, actually, so this is still February 12th at the night, she and about a dozen of her cousins had a sleepover just down the street at her cousin's house and nothing out of the normal. They stayed up watching, you know, TV shows and whatnot, singing, dancing, having a good time, sleep deprived. Again, we're flagging these, but another kind of important or just, you know, thing to make note of. And then we're moving to February 13th, Sunday, February 13th. 
And starting out on that day, the family gets up like usual, attends church at Macedonia Missionary Baptist Church in Waco. They then went and had lunch at Annalisha's house. Annalisha is really... Annalisha is a very prominent aunt (laughs) in Asia's life. But I mean, that's great that like, I think that'd be cool if I had cousins or, or, you know, family down the street that's right there and you can just kind of... Yeah, and it takes a village, really. Yeah, absolutely. So at that point, she got candy from her grandmother, Joanne, for Valentine's Day. Don't know why this is an important topic, but it's mentioned in several articles. Many times, yeah. Yeah, they're big on the candy here in 2000. Big on the candy. Candy is a theme, and Valentine's Day is obviously a theme. Yeah, and so then they head home, and then we come to the important night. Yes. So as as I mentioned earlier... Her father worked the second shift. And so Harold left in the late afternoon to go to work. Aisha went to bed around 6.30 p.m., obviously exhausted, I'm sure, from the sleepover the night before. And then she woke up. And this there's several conflicting accounts in this kind of February 13th, 14th timeline. But it seems to me that I could almost say like anywhere between 8 and 9 p.m., there was a power outage, and that's what woke her up. Yes, yeah, and because of the power outage, normally the kids would get a little bath at night, um, but obviously because of the power outage, the kids couldn't get their evening bath. So Aisha's mother, Iquila, um, actually just sort of planned that they would wake up earlier the next morning right? Um, and do the bath then and get the kids ready for school that Monday and, you know, do it that way. But what's hazy and what's really weird about this story is the period of time between, I'd say, about 8.30 p.m. and 12.30 a.m., And then again, we have another gap from about 1230 a.m. to 2.30 a.m. I couldn't agree more. Yep. Yeah. So really important period of time. But um, we have to assume that sometime around 830, I guess, Aisha goes back to bed. Right. um, And she and O'Brien kind of go back to their room, which they shared. And um, all seems okay. They go to bed. Nothing out of the ordinary. So Harold is at his second shift job and he comes home. He sounds like he has a horrible schedule at 1230 AM. And, you know, he's back and sometime between 830 and 1230 AM, the power was restored. Yeah. I heard it was close to when he came back. It actually came back on. Yeah. Lucky him because he always loved to watch TV apparently. Right. And what's interesting is here, there are three different versions of what happened when Harold returned home. Yeah, yeah. And it's three really popular versions that I heard kind of repeated over and over again in different sources. And what's interesting is we don't know why there are three different versions. Yeah, that's, know, that's a great point. It's right? never addressed like, so anywhere. It's never addressed. Like officially. Yeah, and we don't know if it's because Harold is continuously changing his story. That's a great point. 
or if it's because people trying to make sense out of what happened are trying to fill in the blanks and make things a little bit different. But in any event, for whatever reason, we've got these three core versions. So version one, one of the most popular versions of the story is that Harold returns home from work at 1230 a.m., watches TV for a couple hours to unwind, and then he goes to bed at 2.30 a.m. Right. And then that is the gap between 12.30 and 2.30. Version two, Harold comes home and then leaves again to get Valentine candy for the kids. Right. Again, can't, this Valentine candy is a prevalent oh, that's theme. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, they're big on it. And I do have to interject here too. This may be a slight variation on this on this one too. Yeah. Uh, February 14th was... Harold and Aquila's anniversary as well. Oh, I didn't even know that. Yeah. So it, I've also seen it that like he, he went out to get Valentine's candy and or something for their anniversary type of thing. Candy. Well, yeah, they love yeah. they're big on the candy. <laughs> right. So he comes home, leaves out again to go get either candy, anniversary treats, whatever, comes back home, goes to bed at 2.30. Right. Version three, which is the rarest version from what I could tell, and definitely the weirdest version, um, is that Harold comes home at 1230, mm-hmm. sees Asia fully yes. clothed. I'm so glad you brought this clothes. up. This is so weird. Really important and just odd. I mean, yeah. not that it matters, but it just strange. Um yeah. Anyway, Harold comes home at 1230. He sees Asia on the couch, fully clothed, watching TV. He sends her to bed. He says, right. you know, get in bed, whatever. And what's strange about this is that it conflicts with O'Brien's testimony that he saw Asia in her white nightgown with a right. teddy bear on it yeah. when she was going to bed right? Um, and during the night. So it's kind of weird. Again, we don't know what the sources were for that. We don't know who's, you know, making these claims, if it was Harold himself, or if it was just other people trying to make sense of the story. Right. Regardless though, there are these three versions. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And you don't know too, because even when I was looking through um, the old newspaper articles and stuff, it's very easy for them to get stuff wrong, even if they're quoting people and anything like that. So the thing that I want to say too, is, is what I've seen the most. And again, don't know how, how true this is or how accurate this is, is that first when Harold comes home, the 1230 that you were talking about, he goes in and checks on his kids, sees them there. Mm-hmm. Don't know what he does between that and the 230 time frame. But then I I feel like the most consistent we can say is that I've seen he gets home at 1230 and he goes to bed by 230. So when he goes to bed at 230, he again checks on his kids, sees Mm -hmm. that they're there. But then I also saw that at around 230, O'Brien claims, and this is again, I found two different stories Mm -hmm. of what he sees or hears. One is that he hears Aisha stirring, getting up, possibly going to the bathroom. He doesn't think anything of it. He doesn't pay a ton of attention, obviously, because, I mean, that's the normal. That's normal. That's nothing crazy. Another account of this is that he sees her dressed in her white nightgown with the teddy bear, like you're saying, and he actually sees her get up and goes to the bathroom and sees her return to her bed. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I saw the exact same two stories, the two accounts where either he's hearing her, or he's seeing her. Right. But in but some way, he's very different. Her. You know, like, yeah. Especially yeah. when we get to theories at the end, it's, it, it really, you know, hearing somebody moving versus seeing who's actually moving and seeing important. where they're going, where they're coming from, and what they're dressed in. Exactly. You know. And they're returning, going to bed. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's definitely important. Yeah, so we have another gap in time between 2.30 a.m. and as early as 5.45 a.m. or as late as 6.30 a.m. Right. But the earliest account that I found was 5.45 a.m. Iquilla's alarm goes off for the Mm -hmm. morning. And again, she was waking up earlier because she had to give the kids the bath that they couldn't have the night before due to the power outage. Right. So she goes to wake up the kids and she um, first goes to the bathroom, starts the bath water going, and then goes to um, the bedroom that O'Brien and Aisha share to wake them up. And O'Brien instantly shoots out of bed like he always does. He's like ready to greet the day. And Aisha is not in her bed. And it becomes clear pretty quickly that she's not in the room at all. Right. Um, Iquilla just sort of shoot, like looks around the room a little bit, notices, you know, sometimes because... Aisha and her brother were very close. Sometimes they'd like snuggle. I think she'd sure. sometimes like lay well, with him. And you have to think if there was that storm going on, I could totally see, you know, her being scared or something and and them sharing the bed that night. Totally, totally. So she kind of looks around the bed. She, Aisha's not there either. And then finally she starts to search the house. Oh, God. And you just can imagine, like, oh, this is God. so similar to me to like the Jean Bonnet yeah. theory because it's That's just so true. Just waking and- the mother waking up. Oh, my God. You're so right. Yeah, it's nuts. And just figuring out and now granted, I mean, this mother seems completely innocent. And for whatever reason, the focus was never on either parent. Yeah, Um, they ruled them out pretty quickly, though, very early in the game. Um, but the fear that must have gripped her when she realized, oh my gosh, Aisha's nowhere to be found. Right. Um, is just terrifying. So I think it's not until what, like 630 or maybe even a little bit later that Harold calls 911. Yeah. So again, this is where the timeline is kind of, it's hard to tell because again, I've seen accounts that with the family so close by the aunt and the grandma, that they're, I hear, I see one where they're going to the aunt and grandma's houses and checking with them. I hear another where, or saw another where they're calling them and checking with them. And obviously, like we were saying, it could be as early as 545, as late as 630 that they're wake, that Aquila is waking up. And I have that at 640, the first officer arrives. So it seems to me, even at the earliest at 545, if that's when she woke up, and realized that Aisha was was gone. Even within that time period, I could see checking because that's what mm-hmm. they always do on nine. They always do, yeah. Nine one one calls. They're like, "Is there anybody that she could have been with? Have you looked around your house in every location?" And it seems like that's what they did, and then called called nine one one, and the officers arrived pretty quickly. And within that period, you know, within an hour of that, they had tracking dogs and searches and everything kind of going. So yeah, all full regalia was out looking for her. And they even formed a posse uh, made up of different <laughs> concerned neighbors that all joined in and were trying to look for Asia. And yeah. what was really interesting was 
not only did police find no evidence that anybody came into the home and right. abducted Asia, I mean, there was no forced entry, there was no blood, there was no sign of an intrusion, but they also found that Asia may have actually left on her own accord. Exactly. They noticed a couple of items were missing um, that Asia would have needed if she were going to go on a little bit of a journey. And those items were her backpack and her sneaks. Yeah. And basically, I mean, it just sounded like she had gotten some things together and prepared for a little bit of a trip. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because, again, I feel like this this block of time and information is very conflicting because I've seen many varying accounts of what she took with her, too. So she had the backpack and. In a lot of the articles that I that I saw, it was reported that she had her two favorite outfits in it. Don't know how accurate that is, but I've seen as as much as I've kind of copied and pasted it here. So a pair of blue jeans with a red stripe, black sneakers, a long sleeve white shirt with purple lettering. And this was apparently from a family reunion, which I don't know, that detail just kind of makes me like, oh, that's so sad. Uh, a red vest with black trim. Black overalls with a uh, Tweety Bird on them, a long sleeve black shirt and a white shirt. I've also seen that her that she left with her basketball uniform. So it's it's really confusing as far as what she actually left with. But nevertheless, it seems like she had this backpack and obviously at the very least, probably packed two of her favorite outfits is what I saw in some of the earlier report. So it seems like she definitely had some clothes packed with her. Why? I don't know. But, you know, that was kind of the majority of what was in her backpack. Yeah. And when the police brought up to Aisha's parents, whether it was a planned departure or if there's any way that Aisha would ever leave home willingly or would be a runaway or something like that, the parents both said, no, no way. Not only was Asia super sheltered, super scared of the dark storms and dogs, she never would have left during a bad storm and at night. I mean, she was this timid, shy child. She never, ever would have even gotten the idea to, the, the cops suggested maybe she went to meet someone, but where would she have met somebody? I mean, I think like, oh, internet predators. Like, right. But they didn't have a computer in the house. Yeah, yeah. So it, it just doesn't seem like something she would do based on her character at the time, based on her personality. Um, but of course, there's just this odd array of stuff that totally points to leaving of her own volition. Yeah. And I want to point out, too, because I know I mentioned before that both she and her brother had keys to the house, that going along with that no signs of forced entry, when they checked the house the house was locked up. So it's almost assumed that she had the key with her and just kind of locked the doors behind her when she left. So, and that's, that's what I saw across pretty much everything that I read. And you don't know, obviously what police are holding back, what evidence they have, but it seems to me that their conclusion is really that she left on her own, that she wasn't abducted or, you know, taken out in the middle of the night or anything like that. Yeah. And another piece of evidence that speaks to that 
are the fact that two separate motorists actually reported later on between 3.30 and 4 a.m. seeing a little girl with Aisha's description walking along the highway and walking toward town. So it's a highway that she would have been familiar with and would have actually traveled on every single day to get to school. Um, So she knew it well. She knew the area well. And if you picture it again, it is a more rural area. So it probably was one of the only roads in town, you know, if not the main road that, you know, was traveled on to get anywhere. But what's interesting is these two motorists see this little girl, she's nine, and she's walking by herself in a storm. Neither motorist calls 911. Yeah, yeah. Not even, not even like you want to say, okay, it's 2000, cell phones aren't, you know, obviously I've seen that both are truckers, so they'd have CB radios and they could signal somebody. Good point. But even though, even if they didn't want to do that, cell phones aren't as prevalent, like whatever but they didn't even call when they got to their next truck stop or or rest stop or whatever well it sounds like the one trucker tried to help her because of course our first instinct is like what is wrong with these truckers like do anything at all to help this little girl i mean you see a helpless little girl walking on the side of the road and you do nothing right but evidently this one motorist this one trucker actually did try and help her he pulled up alongside her he rolled his window down to speak to her and as soon as he did so she ran into the woods which wouldn't have been like a thick dense woods it would have been like a tree line on the side of the highway way to describe it i was trying to think how you just because it's not woods it's just kind of a wooded area right so but she ran off the main highway and that was the last time she was seen yeah yeah so he actually So this highway, this is Highway 18, was a fairly well-traveled area for truckers kind of traveling through that area, distribution, you know, companies and whatnot. And he actually circled, which again is crazy that he didn't call 911. He circled this area, kind of looped back three times before trying to yell out to her because he found it so weird. And I'm like, yeah, I would have found it weird too. This, yeah. Why not take it the next step and yeah. actually do something about it when it's yeah. clear that your advances are unwelcomed. And I, I just, and, and the fact that you're so concerned, even if I don't remember if it was him or the second witness that said uh, that he thought it was a, a domestic abuse situation where it was like, he thought she might've been a woman. Like he didn't get, if you think about it, you're going past pretty quickly. Yeah. And it's dark and yeah. Yeah. And he thought it was a woman who was in a domestic abuse situation and out taking a walk, which again, why don't you even call about that? Yeah. But okay. Um, But so yeah, he had circled around and like you said, she ran off into the woods and I found this interesting again, just to keep this all in mind based on the stuff that I've read and and other podcasts that I've listened to on this so the police described her when she was seen on this walk as dressed in white shirt white pants and white tennis shoes I found a news article that actually said that she was dressed in a dress he didn't give a color for it and white tennis shoes this is that same individual who's driving the the tractor trailer there and he said that she was walking at a good pace So to me, that indicates that she knows where she's going. Like she's on a mission. She's headed to a destination. That's a good point. Not just wandering like aimlessly down the road. Out there for a walk for an adventure. 
Right. This, the second sighting, which I'm pretty sure this is the correct sequence of the sightings, but like so many other things in this case, it's vague as far as timelines, as far as who came first and what like, you know, stuff like that. So there's a second sighting with a trucker and his son who was actually in the, in the truck with him. I've also seen that it was a automobile, so it's confusing, but they saw her walking around 4 PM. Again, it's anywhere like these two sightings were, were anywhere from pretty much like three to four, 15, 430. And this was about 1.3 miles South of her home. So to me, it's interesting if this is the correct sequence of events that the first sighting, she ran into the woods. The second one occurs potentially after that. So that would indicate that she came out of that and continued on her route. Don't know if that's correct or not, but they pretty much um, said the same thing that they saw her, a a very small figure wearing light colored clothing. And one fact that I think we'll come, come back to later is that being a trucker, if this is correct, he signaled over the CB radio. He warned other truckers along that route to be careful because he was concerned with her walking so close to the road there that somebody wouldn't see her and would accidentally hit her. Which again, like all these other truckers got this signal and I mean, I would love to have heard the signal and how, what his phrasing was, because like, what else do you say other than little girl near the yes. side of the road? Like, look out. Yeah. I'm not calling 911, but everybody else look out. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's pretty crazy. Wow. Well, what's crazy too, is the fact that the next lead doesn't come or the next sighting of anything doesn't come for another day or two. And that happens on February 17th when police come to a property off the side of the highway and they question a woman about something interesting she found on her property on the 15th, which was just the day after Valentine's Day that Asia disappeared. And what she found was in her shed on the side of her property, she found a Mickey Mouse hair bow, a pencil and a pen. And at the time, she didn't think anything of it, but once Aisha's disappearance became known to her by the police, you know, letting her know and searching, um, she instantly put two and two together, gave the police the okay to search the shed, and not only did the police find these belongings, but they found additional belongings that were also confirmed as Aisha's. Yeah, this is interesting, and again, some inconsistencies don't know how accurate this is, but what I've seen too, those three items that you mentioned first is that it was actually a green marker. This is super specific. A white 1996 Atlantic Olympics pencil and a Mickey Mouse hair bow. But then along with that, like you're saying, they actually found a cellophane candy wrapper and wallet-sized photo of a little girl, which is eerie as anything. Yes. Like, I just, I don't know. So this this um, was actually Turner's Upholstery was the company and family that kind of owned this lot because it was very rural. There were a lot of outbuildings and stuff like that. And I actually found a really 
bad photo. Like it doesn't give you a great perspective, but it shows you a picture of this shed at the time. And they describe it as a shed. So for me, I'm picturing I don't a know, tiny, like, like, like garden shed that you have yeah. in your backyard. This was like a, a warehouse, a s- very small warehouse. It was like a, like you would store some farm equipment in it, like okay. tractors and stuff so like maybe that. almost more like a barn. Yeah. It, yeah, definitely. It was definitely more like a barn and the picture again, gave you a little bit of perspective, but it's, it's fairly big. And some of the news articles that I found said that this was actually a place that they kept furniture at the time in the shed. Again, they call it a shed, but it's definitely, definitely pretty big. It was a doorless dwelling, I guess, or not even a dwelling, just a doorless um, structure. And the items were found close to the entrance of this And the owners of Turner's Upholstery, who owned this land and the company was kind of located there too, said that it was actually filled with farm equipment and also furniture items. And an interesting theory that I saw was that the photo could have potentially come out of some of this furniture. Because it sounds like to me they took old furniture, reupholstered it, and- So it could have been where they're storing that old furniture and it could have been something that had fallen out of that. But another thing that I thought was really interesting was uh, it says a neighbor, but I'm assuming it's a family member who kind of lives on the property as well. The Reverend Mackie Turner, who was a pastor at the time, he kept six beagles in a dog lot behind the shed. And he said that they would bark if they saw or heard anybody and nobody heard anything that wow which is kind of interesting interesting. to me with Aisha's fear of dogs and also just in general not hearing anything yeah oh that's so interesting oh my gosh and you would think that there would at least be a stirring of some kind something yeah if anything went down you don't know what because it was storming that night too so you don't know how bad the storm was at that point but you still would think that you would hear the dogs over that if you've got especially like beagles are like barky howly dogs yeah Yeah. Uh, every little thing I mean they're hunting dogs so it's like you know, they are there to report and that's probably why they had them there too, exactly. to make sure I'm that sure they're, right. yeah. you know, wasn't any infiltration, um, at that warehouse. Yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. If on their doorless dwelling that they, you know, kept furniture in, that makes total sense. Right. Kept totally open. Yep, exactly. So I would say this is a good place to wrap up for part one of this topic. We obviously have a ton of info to still go through for this case. Tune in for part two, where we go into the next steps in this case and the investigation, theories, suspects. It's definitely one that's been on my list that I've wanted to look into. And I think you're going to want to tune in to hear some of the interesting theories that we come up with. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode of Betsy Boss Podcast. If you'd like to find us online, we're on Facebook at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Instagram at Betsy Boss Podcast, on Twitter at Betsy Boss Pod, and our email is BetsyBossPodcast at gmail.com. Also, Betsy Boss is now on both iTunes and Spotify. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and comment. 
Thanks again for listening. 